Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head. I'm Michael Bartz. My guest today is Heinrich Setra. Heinrich is an associate professor at Otsfold University College and head of the R&D research area, the Digital Society, which investigates the interplay between technology, individuals, and society. Heinrich uses political science, psychology, and philosophy of technology to analyze the implications of big data, artificial intelligence, and social robots. Heinrich has worked on environmental ethics, looking at technology's role in humans' moral and physical environment, and how technology can enable or inhibit sustainable development. Heinrich regularly holds lectures, speeches, and seminars, both nationally and internationally. Welcome to In Over My Head, Heinrich. Thank you very much, Michael. Nice to be here. So when talking about our digital life, one technology that seems relevant is artificial intelligence. Although this concept has been around for a very long time, in recent years, AI has become embedded into every facet of our lives. This has brought us many advances, but that's not the whole story. I'm sure it could be argued that any technology is a double-edged sword. However, the stakes seem bigger when it comes to AI. There are deeply ethical and moral questions at play, and I'm looking forward to discussing some of these with you today. In your recent book, AI for Sustainable Development Goals, you look at how artificial intelligence affects the UN's 17 sustainable development goals that tackle everything from the environment to social justice and the economy, politics, health, and work. We won't go through them one by one, but generally, what is meant by sustainable development in this context? Sure. Um, I and the Sustainable Development Goals authors, I guess, uh, rely heavily on the concept of sustainable development as it was uh, developed in the 1987 report from the Brundtland Commission and Our Common Future, where they talk about sustainable development as consisting of three interlocking dimensions, the social sustainability, the economic sustainability and environmental sustainability. That kind of shows that there are really deep tensions to be tackled when it comes to dealing with sustainable development, but uh, that's, yeah, it's necessary to see this as interdependent dimensions that involve some really, really deep and difficult questions related to stuff such as economic growth and inequality, for example. And the role of technology is interesting in that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it seems to me that yeah, it's definitely a challenging thing to balance that economic growth with environmental sustainability because sometimes those things are in conflict. So I find that very interesting. And so in your book, obviously, it's about artificial intelligence. It might be helpful to just define what we mean by artificial intelligence in this context. Yeah, um, and that could be a book in itself, right? There's a lot of debate about what, what AI is and what it isn't. And I won't really be that technical in this respect. And I'm not in the book because few authors are. I rely on some popular definitions that kind of resembles what they use in the national strategies on AI, these kinds of things, and also what's been written in a paper, for example, by Vinuesa and other authors in 2020. That's quite influential, where they say that AI is software with at least one of the following capabilities, perception, decision-making, prediction, knowledge extraction, pattern recognition, interactive communication, and logical reasoning. They define AI as a software capable of doing stuff that humans used to be required to perform. And this includes stuff like different forms of machine learning and logical AI and different technical aspects. But I think it's good to work with this kind of common sense definition of AI as really advanced software. And so in your book, you talk about how AI can help address climate action. So tell me a bit about that. 
Yes, that takes us to, yeah, because in the book I go through each of the goals pretty much, but I go through them in the three dimension, the social, economic, and environmental, and this takes us straight to SDG 13, which is climate action. But I think it's useful to kind of also remember that broader framework. What can AI do for promoting climate action in terms of large-scale societal effects? And then we have those kinds of intermediate effects that I call meso-effects on regions or companies, organization, groups of people, but also micro-level effects on you and I. Can AI help on that level as well? So I think if we go through each of them very briefly, on the micro-level, for example, AI can help you and me to... To understand our carbon footprint, how our behavior affects uh, greenhouse gas emissions, it can analyze our patterns, it can provide us with information, it can nudge us, it can change our behavior, which is good, right? That can help. But that also takes us straight to SDG 12, which is about responsible consumption. So these goals are interrelated because responsible consumption also is a part of climate action. So it's these kinds of effects. On the meso level, I think we have reduction of emissions uh, through optimization of processes and industry, the optimization of energy grids, uh, increased resilience of energy grids. AI is used in these sorts of contexts. So it can make processes a bit more efficient. Uh, Some would say a lot more efficient, but at least a bit more efficient. Energy grids a bit more efficient, so we won't need as much energy. So it's these sorts of things. AI could, in theory, also be used to help us create new forms of materials, for example, and do this kind of radical innovation that cuts emissions and makes processes more environmentally friendly, which is also something I place in the company level at the, at least first. But on a macro level as well, we get this large-scale insights optimization across regions and systems. Optimization of policies, for example, um, AI might be able to deduce patterns and help make us make better policies, make better regulations, but also just being able to analyze massive amounts of data and help us through research and through other processes to optimize processes. I'm kind of portraying it in a book, not as a solution that helps us immediately get to the Paris Agreement goals, right? But it could have this at least incremental effects, uh, at least the partial effects of optimizing processes. But I think we need a lot more. These are mainly mitigation efforts, right? Cutting emissions. But in terms of adaption also, it's also used to understand where will extreme weather events hit, for example, what must we do in the future in order to be more resilient, in order to adapt to the unavoidable changes. So it's these things as well. Uh, Not very specific, but there are a lot of different initiatives related to this. But it's not very mature technology. So it's interesting because there's a lot of hype around AI. And there's a lot of theoretical papers on how AI can optimize this and do that and do all sorts of different things. But the kind of real radical great impact hasn't really been demonstrated yet, I would say. So it's still partially hypothetical. But of course, there are some effects demonstrated. Oh, absolutely, for sure. And so within those different levels, as it is right now, where do you see the biggest impact with artificial intelligence? I would say that it's on the the meso level. Those um, who have the infrastructure, they have the, those who have the competencies required, which is hard to come by uh, in certain places. Also the infrastructure, the computing infrastructure and energy infrastructure and all these kinds of different things and the data and knowledge, uh, they are able to most effectively use AI to optimize their processes. And that means optimizing energy usage. It means also optimizing and reducing waste, for example, in their processes by using AI to plan how much uh, demand will there be tomorrow. So you won't just produce unnecessary goods, for example, and you'll reduce waste in products and materials and in energy and all these different things. But I think that's on a meso level, mainly these days. 
Yeah, and if I remember correctly in the book, you also talk about how it can affect the ocean or the land. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. That's the next goal, right? If we go from 13 to 14. Yeah, it can be used to benefit life below water. And then the targets of the SDGs are relatively specific. But we could do this sustainable management of marine and coastal ecosystems, for example. That's one. You could use AI to track uh, fish stocks, for example, to know where are they, how many fish are there, how healthy are these stocks, should we protect them or not, should we adjust our extraction of these resources. So that's just one potential way to use this. But what I talk about in the book, and you mentioned in the beginning, is that it's a double-edged sword as well, right? So those who want to protect this fish stock can track them. But so could others, right? They have access to the imagery they need and the equipment they need and the sensors and the data they need. You could also use AI to hunt these and extract these resources more effectively. So that's kind of the double-edged nature of AI. Yeah, that's definitely a recurring theme. And the thing that came to mind for me first was that Yes, these technologies are good, but what is the downside? And you touched a bit on the companies and tech, so that's something that interested me. Obviously, the big tech companies are investing heavily in artificial intelligence, and I have to maybe assume that their interests are more economic than environmental. Do you see a conflict with this? Well, some wouldn't, I guess. It depends a bit on your perception of political economy and the beneficial nature of markets, I guess. That's a kind of an old debate. I really see this as a valid concern. You asked me before how AI kind of helped climate action. Yes, it can have these beneficial effects because that's what you asked me about, but it also has a climate cost, right? Training these large-scale models that just gives us fancy pictures and texts and all these things, for example, has a carbon cost. It costs energy to use AI as well. So that's kind of one potential downside. But definitely their goal isn't to save the earth or save the environment, right? They have various stakeholders, but I think none are disillusion enough to think that the big tech companies are in it to save the, save the world. And I think that's kind of a problem as well, because that goes to what I also want to stress is the role and the importance of getting politics and regulation on this ball and getting it in play. There's a lot of talk about AI ethics and sustainable AI and all these kind of different initiatives from the industry itself. Because they would very much like not to be regulated, right? Not to have politicians and regulators interfere in their workings. So I think that's definitely a concern. And I think that's definitely an important thing to keep in mind. That these companies aren't really developing tech for good as their main purpose. They might try it and it might be beneficial and it might be profitable. But still, that's not their goal, right? So we need to make sure that this technology actually contributes to reaching the goals we find important. So do you see government intervention as the most effective way to mitigate that? I think it's necessary. It's, it might not be favorable, yeah, the ideal solution, but I think in lieu of any other good solutions, good ways to regulate this, I think we've seen it. What big tech does if it's allowed to run relatively free, and I think there are some consequences that we need to tackle. And yes, that means saying no to certain advantages and certain comforts and certain things. But I think it's, yeah, if we are serious about social or sustainable development in all three dimensions, I think it's, it's necessary. And that involves saying no to some things. So, What sort of things would you be saying no to? I'd say, for example, a lot of different uh, Internet of Things uh, appliances are not really necessary for me. They're just producing data, using more energy. They're making my devices last shorter time period than they would otherwise do. I'm not using Siri, for example. I'm not using these different AI-based services that's nice and a bit fun, but don't really provide me with anything good. So I think, um, yes, we might say no to some of the most advanced features on social media and some of these different things. Uh, we might have to abstain from some such things, but nothing really radical, in my opinion. Nothing really detrimental to my life, at least. 
Sure. And if you don't mind me asking, like, are you abstaining from those things because of the data privacy, for instance? Yes, partially. Partially because of that and partially because I'm not really very happy with what it does with me and with my relations with other people. So I think there's an argument there. But it's become infrastructure in a sense, right? It's become really difficult to opt out of these things. It has a really high social cost. So that's kind of also points to the problem of making this kind of putting this on individuals as opposed to putting this on regulators and uh, society at large to say, what sort of data do we want gathered? Uh, what sort of uses of this data do we allow and want to allow? I think that's kind of a necessary step in order to fix some of these problems related with the costs of private social in- infrastructure, which AI and data-based services has become. Yeah, it's definitely where I'm at. These technologies are good in that we should use technology to advance society. But yeah, what is the cost? And you you touched a bit on that social cost. Can you tell me a bit more about that? The social cost of technology? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, yeah, of course, with data, we have all these well-known aspects related to discrimination and bias in data and services, for example. That applies to people exposed to AI used as a decision maker or decision support tool, for example, you can get biased and discriminatory outcomes that are opaque, right? We can't really understand. We won't necessarily even uncover that it's biased, but it is. So that's one aspect of it. I think one more serious aspect that I like to foreground a bit more in terms of the sustainable development goals is a lot of attention about local and regional and global differences between those who have access to technology and the infrastructure required and those who don't, right? Because I think a lot of, at least here in Norway, around me, everyone has what's required to use AI and the services we need in a relatively fair and straightforward way. That's not the case everywhere, right? I think those social costs related to who gets the benefits of these new AI-powered services and tools, for example, they're quite expensive. They require expensive equipment, a lot of them, and they're not really accessible without relatively advanced infrastructure, societal infrastructure. So I think in the global sense, also, you have this other issue related to inequality. That's also important, discrimination and bias within societies, but also these huge differences between societies. Yeah, if I remember correctly, in the book, you touch on the new colonialism, how that technology could be the thing that separates those people. And and yes, obviously, it causes inequality. And I even remember you talk about it's less related to the environment, but more about work and how employers might use that to track their employees and how it's benefiting them more than it is their employees, right? Yeah, definitely. AI shifts power in general, I think. At work, for example, you get more control. You can use AI for monitoring and controlling and getting the upper hand on your employees if you want to, because knowledge is power then. If you assume that this is right, then the knowledge derived from increased data gathering and analysis is powerful and it provides people with power. And the data colonialism thing goes to who owns the data gathered throughout the world from social networks, for example. It's not really local nations in Africa, for example. It's usually the big tech companies in the West and China that owns kind of the data, gathers it and uses it, and then applies it again in these same societies without them really owning or developing or deriving the benefit from it themselves. And that's kind of part of the new data colonialism part. I haven't coined, but others have coined. Also, the fact that they buy all every startups uh, before they get successful, right? They're bought up and integrated into some other sort of constellation. So it's these sorts of issues. 
No, yeah, for sure. And and it's, I think, yeah, definitely looking at the, like you said, that opacity is we don't know who's using it and for what purpose, right? So I think for me, that's the biggest problem. And, and with AI, as you talked about, we don't know how they're learning. We don't know, like it's just advances so much faster than we can even comprehend it sometimes. So I think for me, that's the biggest concern with AI. It's different than any other technology. Yeah, yeah, I think it's that's definitely a huge part of the problem because, first of all, we might agree to giving away our data for a particular purpose at some point in time. Some service that we think, yes, giving away my data for this is good. I, I accept this. But this data is repackaged and repurposed and shared and sold, right, and put together in so different many ways that we have no idea about, no insight into. So saying that we've agreed once and that's fine, it's very problematic. And I also think that kind of saying that, yes, I agree to data being gathered for this purpose, but also in the future, you get kind of new possibilities with analysis of old data, for example. So you might accept something at a certain point in time, but then it's used for something completely different and perhaps more sinister in our perception, for example, later on. So there are a lot of problems related to data which are not really tackled by the sustainable development goals in that sense, but still, yeah. Yeah, you did talk about how there are limits for sure. And one interesting thing you said earlier was talking about how it's not benefiting the people in those communities, right? Various countries and such, so how it's benefiting the big tech companies, but not developing countries, for instance. Do you see that changing in the future? If they kind of manage to do what they say that they will in the sustainable development goals, and goal number 17 is a partnership to reach the goals, and it's a lot of talk about technology transfer, and there's a lot of talk about local development and promoting local and regional development and supporting developing countries in their efforts to build their own infrastructure and industries related to these sorts of things. I don't really see it happening yet, but I, they have said that that's the goal by 2030, right? So it's really clear in their written statements, but it's not really happening at the pace I think it needs to be happening yet. So that's kind of a really crucial point, I think, this kind of technology transfer and this sort of also dealing with how do we break up this sorts of sort of monopoly infrastructures that are really difficult to transfer for a government. The government can't, can't just say that, okay, we want you, private company, to transfer your technology here for example. That's difficult, right? As long as it's purely private and market-based. Yeah, I mean, we touched a bit on government intervention. Are there any other solutions you could see to solving that problem? I don't really see the market fixing this itself, but the techno-optimists tend to believe that as, as soon as the problem becomes pressing enough, the market will price the solution high enough to make it happen, right? So some people hope that as soon as the climate crisis becomes serious enough, and I, I wonder if they think it is serious enough already, but... Um, that might kind of drive prices for the solution up and that diverts a lot of capital towards the solution, right? So the market has some sort of mechanism, but it's, I, I think it's too slow. We can't really just wait for that to happen. But I think government inter intervention is really necessary, but I, I think we also need to perceive government intervention not as intervention by some other serious sinister entity, but that this requires us to rethink politics and our role in politics a bit more. So say like the democratic politics, transparent and participatory institutions. And these are all also part of the SDGs and the SDG 16, which is about these effective institutions at all levels, which requires politics to be about what you and I want and how you and I and everyone else is involving themselves in politics to make sure that technology does what we want as a society. I still think that politics is what we need, but I don't think politics has to be something bad. So I think we need to work on that as well. And you talk about there are, you touched on it briefly before, there are limits to the sustainable development goals when it comes to artificial intelligence. So what are those limits? I think 
part of the limits here is that um, if you talk about privacy, for example, if you really value privacy and you're very opposed to surveillance, the kind of surveillance you'll find in a really smart city, for example, based on digitalizing and using AI and data to improve all kinds of services, for example. If you're wary of those kinds of things, that's not really discussed in the SDGs. The need for privacy, the right to privacy, those kinds of issues aren't really problematized. Data and technology is perceived as something good, as is growth. But you could say that, yes, the Agenda 2030 and all the goals are based on the human rights. So in a sense, you can, can sort of indirectly say that it's there, but it's not really discussed. So I think that's one problem. I think another problem is that this is a global framework, right? Everybody has to sign up for this to come into effect. And that means, for example, that democracy is not mentioned once in the actual goals or targets. So there's a lot of kind of roundabout ways they try to approach this without saying these words that some would object to. And the same with the LBTQ people, for example. It's kind of diversity and inclusion, those kinds of issues that are problematic in some parts of the world is not discussed. You have this one goal, gender equality, really heavily focused, right? But you don't have these other aspects of diversity and inclusion that I and others here, for example, think is also important in order to fight discrimination and all these things. You could say that they're indirectly covered, but that's because of kind of some of the limitations, I'd say. Let's touch on those a little bit. So I guess that kind of ties into more of the larger ethical questions around AI and our data and privacy. So tell me a bit about some of those areas that weren't covered and, and what you think about them. Yeah, that's really important. Uh, and that kind of goes in, brings in the need to discuss kind of what's usually discussed in the AI ethics world, which is also kind of a real it's sort of problematic academic area, right? Because uh, as there is hype in the AI industry, there's also a lot of hype in the ethics industry, if you want, right? So everyone is proposing new ethical frameworks and new AI ethics rules and guidelines and principles. So there's a lot of hype here and there's a lot of really old and fundamental insight being just forgotten or ignored because everyone is scrambling to produce some new AI ethics when we already have computer ethics and we already have a lot of technology ethics and science ethics. A lot of these things are really covered in basic stuff. I think um, my approach would be interdisciplinarity here. It's really important that engineers and developers meet social scientists and other sorts of, from other sorts of disciplines and get together. I think um, that's crucial for promoting understanding of the effects of AI. And I think then getting more people involved and knowledgeable about what's going on and then promoting action through knowledge, I think that brings me to how politics play a role here. If you kind of raise awareness of what's at stake, what's, what's the costs here, I think more people would care. Not everyone, of course, democracy and relying on those solutions is problematic. So no really easy solution. But I think AI ethics, the true and meaningful form of AI ethics is really important. And it's a highly interdisciplinary research and industry field that's important, but hasn't really landed. Do you feel like those conversations aren't happening with the different various groups and stakeholders that need to be in the room? I think it's happening more and more, but I think also the amount of different initiatives and efforts from different non-governmental institutions, governmental institutions, and academic institutions is crowding out this, getting to grips with what would be, for example, a good global solution to these issues, because these aren't really solved at a national level. They aren't really solved by individuals alone either. So that brings us to another point of politics, the need to see the global challenge here. And a need to cooperate and make uniform, relatively uniform, at least rules related to how we regulate the use of data and the use of AI. It's natural to talk about this in this context. Climate change also is kind of this global public good, right? I think it's so, sort of the same with data and AI. 
And we had this talk about the global AI war, the cold AI war, for example, right? Between China and the US, who controls the data, who controls the infrastructure, who has the best models, who rules this world of AI. So it's, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, let's talk a bit more about that. I think it's a very interesting topic. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that? The cold war of AI ethics? <laughs> There's definitely definitely attempts here to derive the benefits you could have from AI. If again, knowledge is power, then getting people's data for China, for example, to have data on other on individuals from other societies would be greatly beneficial, right? Of, of its own citizens, it has already, and it's using it to control them in relatively kind of we would say horrendous ways, but at least controversial ways. But also having data on other people and other societies, it's deeply valuable in terms of that's the kind of intelligence that uh, the intelligence agencies of old only could dream of. So if you have this control over data, control over, yeah, mainly data, I'd say would be the kind of the key part that this, it's really crucial to get the data you want. Because a lot of the actual algorithms and the kind of computing solutions, they are relatively well known and published in academic ac uh, fora, right? So kind of the, this kind of, the knowledge of the algorithms is is less important that it's kind of building the infrastructure, the supercomputers, and uh, using the data and making uh, robust infrastructures for making use of the data. I think, yes, there is kind of this fight for AI, and Putin even said that it's his goal, we need AI to kind of rule the world, right? But, but you can use that in... Um, in terms of intelligent weapons, for example, and you get it in all these different applications of AI as well, but you get autonomous weapons, for example. You know, that changes war a bit if people start using those kinds of tools and mechanisms. And we see that in Ukraine, for example, they now have more advanced weapons in the Ukraine than, and than the Russians do, and that makes a difference. So, yes, AI is really kind of, it's, it is powerful in a good sense and in, in a bad sense. So there is a scramble to gain control. And the EU, for example, its, um, its goal is to regulate AI, but it's also to use and develop AI as a competitive advantage for growth and for positioning itself in a global scale. And that goes for most of the large regional actors in politics, I think. And like you talk about in your work, it's a social lens and, you know, it's about the people as well. So I think it's easy with AI to look at the analytics and the data and the technical side of things. But yeah, what's, what, are, what, are the, what is the role of people when it comes to AI in the future? Yeah, it's a broad question, but that's, that's interesting. I think uh, if you go to the basic philosophy of technology, we have this notion that technology is political in a sense. Technology imbues certain values. I think there is a danger that when we start using increasingly advanced AI systems, that we kind of make these sort of our ideal then, and we start to optimize everything. And we see that we can, in theory, optimize how humans behave and act and how social systems act and behave. And we get this sort of development potentially away from this nice messiness about human nature, right? I think it's uh, important to say no to extreme optimization and extreme rationality and preserve some areas of playing around and doing the things that provides at least my life with more value than doing what is perfect and optimal and most efficient at all points in time, right? And that's not really what human life is about to me. So I think it's important that we keep that in mind. And I think this tendency to use AI to control people, manipulate people, optimize people as we optimize tools and cyber-physical systems and these sorts of things. Because we have knowledge of people, you have also the potential to guide them, right? And steer them, not necessarily forcefully through manipulation, for example. So I think it's important to both resist the urge to see these sort of optimal solutions as best, but also to definitely resist the urge to apply 
AI in this sense to control and reduce this human irrationality, because I think irrationality is often quite valuable. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's also like, where is it most applicable as well, right? So if it is very useful in certain contexts, that's great, but maybe AI doesn't need to be in every facet of our lives and used to collect every bit of data. So I, I really appreciate that. You talked a bit about abstaining, like you don't use some of those certain technologies. Is that the best way to have control in your life when it comes to artificial intelligence? Yes, that's kind of definitely an important first step, the most obvious step. Almost the only one we can take. It won't be fully effective because data about me is also collected through my relations with other people, for example, right? And I can't really abstain from being outside where there are cameras and other sorts of sensors and all these sorts of things, the smart meters in my house. It's required by law here. So there are all these sort of different things I can't opt out of. But uh, the things I can opt out of, I think it's good to opt out of. And And I prefer not having a microphone, for example, in my room at home, for example, I don't use Amazon Echo or Siri or these sorts of things. I like this notion of having some control of who has access to at least parts of my life. So uh, yes, abstaining would be the most effective solution for preserving those aspects in a personal life, I guess. It won't really fix the large-scale problems unless we also do something with raising awareness and gaining some momentum. Yeah, I think that awareness point is really key as well, because maybe you want more privacy and someone else doesn't. And I think just making informed choices is probably helpful as well, right? So it's not just a total ban on technology or just totally embracing it, but you're trying to do it in the most intelligent way, I would say. Yeah, I think that's really important. But that's also kind of one of the things I've written about before is privacy as a public good. If I say that I value my privacy and if I have a right to privacy in some sense, then it's really problematic if you have the freedom to say that, but I don't care about privacy. So I'll collect all my data. I'll allow them to have everything here, including all my data about my relations with Henrik, uh, who I meet every day and hang out with, right? So if we allow every individual to make this decision, then we're bound to have some suboptimal outcomes because that goes to some political theory and the harm principle, for example. If you use your freedom in that sense, you're sort of harming me as well, unless we figure out how to break this relational privacy aspect. So in that sense, I guess I'm relatively pro-government intervention, more so than those most uh, yeah, most optimistic about market-based solutions to privacy and informed consent and these sorts of approaches. So I think the EU is doing something right, for example, with the GDPR. They're preventing certain forms of data gathering and usage practices with the AI Act, applying AI in high-risk areas such as schools with children, for example. There we won't allow manipulative use of AI. So in certain settings, we need to consider this public good, some sort of public infrastructure that we need to control in some sense. I think we need to accept that there's a role for government to play here and that these are crucial infrastructures that impact our lives in very many different ways. So I think it's legitimate to say that we want some political control over this technology. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, that's a good point you made about just even interacting with the world, right? Like you can make those individual decisions, but you got to go outside sometime. And yeah. yeah, at least I'd like to, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that's where where my mind goes to where, you know, I don't want to constantly be opting out of things or this website has cookies and oh, should I, uh, should I use this certain yeah, exactly. browser? And I think that's where that larger change, because on the individual scale, you, you only have so much bandwidth to make those decisions. And eventually you just say, ah, okay, fine. 
just I accept all things, just accept everything. So yeah, that's that's interesting that the European Union is spearheading those initiatives, especially to protect children and stuff like that's uh, really, really good. Yeah, it is. Because I think it's kind of been demonstrated that the notice and choice approach, you're provided with a notice about cookies and you can make your own choice because that's kind of the ideal liberal solution to you're informed and you make your own decision, right? That's a notice and choice regime that's being largely replaced in Europe by a bit more prohibitive approach of certain practices that they deem unnecessary for producing valuable things and uh, potentially conducive to harms that we want to kind of just prevent and not give people a choice that they won't really understand because it's it's an impossible choice. We talked about data being repurposed and repackaged and spread. And so you saying yes to a cookie being gathered, you have no idea about what really happens. So it's not an informed choice either. It's just kind of a superficially informed choice. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that inequality too, because you want to use that certain app or you want to access that website, that social media, whatever it might be. You have to give up some of your privacy and some of your data in order to even just be part of the world, right? Yeah, I have a son, for example, right? And uh, at least previously, his um, sports team, they had this group on Facebook. So uh, yes, I have a choice. I could say I don't want a Facebook account, but it's sort of a false choice if the costs associated with saying no become too high. So I think that that's really an important point to keep in mind. And also an important point to keep in mind for everyone like you and I as well. When we set up groups on different platforms, we should consider that this drives the need to be there for people that might not want to be there. So finding different solutions might be a good idea at times. Yeah, I know in some other reading I've done, it talked about how, yeah, it's challenging because let's say with social media, because it's the place where everyone is meeting, you can't just say, hey, I'm over here. If no one's there, then and then it's not effective because it's not social. It's really difficult to have everyone shift over all at once to maybe a, a more sustainable platform or, or a better business model. Yeah, it's really difficult. And it's really that kind of just uh, generates this impossible dilemma for all of us uh, academic researchers like me, for example. I might be critical of social media and big tech companies, but I'm using Twitter, right? I have to use Twitter because that's how I get ahead in this job because I need attention, right? So it's always this kind of, you feel like a hypocrite always, right? If you're trying to change the system, but you also have to play along and strengthen the system. So this is this dilemma also plays out some people's lives, I think. Uh, I think you might want to abstain from certain things, but it's required. So you just kind of run around feeling bad about using things that you have to use. And it might then be kind of a problematic for me to say that I want the government to fix this so I won't feel bad about or have to make those tough choices. For me, it's based on, I think this would be good for society at large and individuals in general. So I think it's, yeah, that's what politics is about, discussing these things. So. That makes me just think about just generally, you know, with artificial intelligence, we've talked a bit about privacy and government and things like that. So this show is about empowering citizens to take action on the climate crisis. And so when it comes to artificial intelligence, what can people do? Yeah, I think uh, it's probably come out through this conversation that it is difficult for individuals to do this. I think it's important to keep this in mind when we choose our politicians and if we choose to get involved in politics, for example, that's the thing I've been saying here. That's slow, right? And that's slow and uncertain way of enacting change. But uh, in general, rejecting unsustainable practices when you see them in services, you could turn off this also different sort of tracking and cookies and different sort of AI-based services, personalization. You can turn all those things off. So there are are all these small things you can do. You could engage in obfuscation and putting bad data into these sorts of data sets, for example. That's also really strenuous and demanding of expecting people to do that. So I think in general, figure out what you need in order to be happy. And that 
to me at least, involves saying, well, I don't really need this to a lot of new high-tech services based on AI and data gathering practices. So I think uh, for me at least, that's opting out of this, what is unnecessary. And that's not just services, that's a lot of products as well, which I think makes sense. And I think there's a lot of new and good legislation and offers out there in terms of more reusable and recyclable and more circular products and options that are more robust, last longer, and can be repaired to these sorts of things. Making those kinds of choices, I think, is good. And I think AI doesn't really play that much of a factor in these kinds of products, maybe in producing them and doing innovations. But that's kind of, that's a good thing, if so. That's very helpful. Thanks for that information. This has been a very interesting conversation. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Heinrich. Thank you very much, Michael. Look forward to future episodes. It's an interesting podcast. Well, that was my conversation with Heinrich. Clearly... As with many of the topics, that larger societal change is what we need to focus on. And I'm glad that uh, he also talked about abstaining from certain things, because that's where I'm at, and it's nice to hear that other people are doing that too. Well, that's all for me. I'm Michael Bartz. Here's to feeling a little less in over our head when it comes to saving the planet. We'll see you again soon. In Over My Head was produced and hosted by Michael Bartz. Original theme song by Gabriel Thing. If you would like to get in touch with us, email info at inovermyheadpodcast.com Special thanks to Tell a Story High for making this show possible. I'm trying to save the planet, oh will someone please save me?